Turn your Bibles to John chapter 12. But before we get to John chapter 12, did everybody get one of these papers that's sitting out on back there on the stand? Raise your hand if you still need one of these papers here. As I had mentioned earlier, today is Palm Sunday. And on Palm Sunday, that is um, famously when Jesus made his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem as it was prophesied that the Messiah would when he was about to make restoration to God's chosen people. And this, what this paper is, is every single gospel, and I explained this in Sunday school, but some of you weren't there in Sunday school, so I'll explain it again. What this is, is a harmony of the gospel accounts of the triumphal entry. Each gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, tell the same story, but record it slightly differently. Some give different details that other, other gospels don't give, and those other gospels give details that the other gives, that the others don't give. So this is basically an attempt to bring in all the details about the triumphal entry and put them in one account. And as you'll see at the bottom, there are, there are footnotes that correspond to bracketed elements at the top. Uh, Matthew chapter 21 was the, was the backdrop, and then everything else in brackets was added from another gospel account of the triumphal entry. And that will include a footnote that tells you what passage, what verse, that that portion is brought into. And if you would like some further explanation on that later, I'll, you can come up to me and I'll try to explain it to you a little bit better. Um, but I wanted to do this for you just so that we could see what all was going on on this day of palms, this triumphal entry when Jesus enters the, the capital of God's kingdom, essentially in that day, Jerusalem. And I'm going to read through this. We're going to read this together. Um, we'll be reading from this account here on this sheet. Um, and it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her, on which no one has ever sat. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And we'll send it back here immediately, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. And some of the owners who were standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the crowds that went before him and that followed him began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Even the king of Israel, Hosanna in the highest, peace in heaven, and blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to them, done to him 
The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Lord, I thank you for Christ the King for the anointed one coming in the name of the Lord with salvation in his hands coming on our behalf to fulfill the will of his Father. And Lord, may we honor him. May he be glorified in our souls. May he be that bright and morning star that we look to, that we can't take our eyes off of. Though the whole world be shouting after our attention, Lord, I pray that our attention would not stray from our Savior, Jesus Christ. Pray that you would give us understanding that we might believe in the one true Son of God, the firstborn, the firstborn from the dead, our resurrected Lord who sits at your right hand. And I just pray that by the Spirit we might see these things just as the disciples could only see these things once your Spirit had come upon them. Open our eyes, guide our hearts into all truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, most of us will say when asked the question, why did Jesus come? Many of us might say, well, he came to die for our sins. Now, we have children, and when we tell our children, children, I want you to go and clean your room. Ultimately, are we telling our children to go clean their room because a messy room is really getting in our way? No, we, we never go into our kids' room, so it doesn't really get in our way that their kids' room is messy. Really, the ultimate reason why we want our children to clean their room is because we want them to be responsible. So telling them one thing isn't necessarily the one thing we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, we want them to have a, room, a clean room, and sometimes it kind of itches that OCD scratch that some of us might have to have everything neat and in order. But really, the ultimate purpose for trying to get our kids to take care of, to clean their room is to learn how to take care of their things and be responsible. Now, in a sense, this is a little bit of what's going on when, when we're asked the question, why did Jesus come? Well, he came to die for our sins. Well, not necessarily. The incarnation was necessary for Jesus to physically die for our sins but that wasn't the ultimate purpose for which Christ came. In order to fulfill the purpose for which Christ came, he had to die for our sins. 
That was part of the process. It needed to happen. He had, without the shedding of blood, there is no what? There is no remission of sins. But as we're going to see a little bit today, Jesus has a triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. In the Old Testament prophecies, which we looked at in more detail this morning in Sunday school, which we will not focus too much on today, um, we saw many, many prophecies showing Jesus, who will be the Messiah, who will become the King of Israel, to come in the line of David to fulfill the prophecy that David's line would never end, that it would be forever, that it would go on, and there would be no end to that kingship, that line, that, that line of David's, um, David's descendants being on the throne. And Jesus came and satisfied that prophecy for the Messiah. Um, but why is it so important for Jesus to come and be a king? I mean, he came to die, right? And this is, this is really one of the problems that these people who are shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. This is, this is where a lot of them stumbled. You know, the, God says that uh, in, the, in the scriptures that Jesus would be a stumbling block to many. Because there were going to be many who could only see the physical aspect of what's going on here. And the people would stumble over it. And only those who had faith in Christ could really be saved. Because from the Old Testament prophecies, it seemed clear that Jesus would be the king of Israel, he would establish Israel as a new nation, as, as the nation, the glorified nation that it was always intended to be. But that's not exactly what happened, is it? And the people stumbled when Jesus was crucified. And that's why the crucifixion was such a stumbling block to the Jews. Because according to the prophecies, the Messiah was not supposed to die. His, his kingship was supposed to last forever. A king's line, a king cannot be king forever if he's dead, physically speaking. And that's why it was such a, the crucifixion was such a stumbling block, even to these people who were so hyped up on Jesus when he entered into Jerusalem. They thought that he was going to, this was going to be the time where he initiates his sovereign power over all creation and brings all the blessings of God upon Israel. But that is not what happened. Why? Because they didn't have faith in Jesus. They knew the prophecies, but they were not willing to follow Jesus wherever he went. They were willing to follow Jesus in so much as they could understand his actions. And often, many times, we don't go much farther than that, than these Hosanna-speaking Jews. We're willing to follow Jesus as long as we can understand what's going on in my life. We're willing to follow Jesus as long as I can understand this problem of how evil occurs in the world, even if God is good and um, he hates sin. And, but I don't understand how evil could then exist, so God doesn't exist. Because we're only willing to follow in so much as we understand and that's why Jesus is a stumbling block. That's why Paul said that um, 
the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. Because those who have no faith are simply going to trust in their understanding. How much of this, it makes sense to me. I'm going to follow as long as it's making sense. When it stops making sense, then I'm going to follow after something that makes sense. I'm going to jump ship, I'm going to leave Christ behind, and I'm going to jump onto something that actually makes sense. Why? Because the perishing walk according to sight rather than by faith. Those who are saved, those who are truly the disciples of Christ, walk by faith and not by sight. We understand that here. And in so much as we see these Hosanna-speaking Jews saying Hosanna and glorifying Christ, they were speaking good things. They were saying the right things. They were glorifying Christ. I mean, if any of us could just be excited like these people are about the Messiah, we would be doing well. But ultimately, these people were still off base because they didn't understand exactly why Jesus was coming. They had their idea of what the Messiah was supposed to be like. But once God made things confusing, most of these people would abandon him. Once the soldiers pulled out a hammer and nails, most of these people would want nothing to do with this Messiah. Once this Messiah was stuck up on that cross, bleeding, most of these people would want nothing to do with that. Because that's not their image of the Messiah. And many people today, yeah, we'll follow the Messiah as long as life is going well. But once a tragedy hits, and God doesn't answer my prayers to fix it all, I don't want anything to do with that Messiah. That doesn't make any sense. That's not serving me the way I feel like I need to be served. And that was where the stumbling block was in these early days. They didn't think that the Messiah was doing what he was supposed to be doing. According to their understanding of the scriptures. Now, back to the, let's get back on track here. So Jesus came to die for our sins, right? He was supposed to be crucified. He was supposed to shed his blood like the Paschal Lamb. His blood was supposed to be wiped on our doorposts so that the angel of death passes over us and we are not touched by death on the day of visitation. Okay, that's supposed to happen. And in fact, have you ever thought about why exactly it was that Jesus was crucified during the Passover? Because he, the Passover, back in the days of Egypt, was always supposed to be prophetic of the ministry of the Messiah. It wasn't clear to everybody, but that's the way it was. Jesus died as the new Passover lamb, whose blood is eternal, who covers sins once and for all, rather than the old system where sheep, had, sheep and goats and bulls had to keep getting sacrificed, keep getting sacrificed, keep getting sacrificed, Throughout all eternity, they would have to keep getting sacrificed unless God brought another way, which was Jesus Christ. Now, his death had to happen, but what did his death accomplish? Christ came to die, yeah, 
but not just to die. Christ's death made the way possible for his kingdom to truly be established. Christ did not come to just die. He came to establish an eternal kingdom, just like it was prophesied, just not a physical kingdom, like the Jews were expecting him to turn Israel into the new physical kingdom of God. He came to establish a kingdom, and the way to do that was to die. And Jesus says, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it cannot bear fruit. And that's exactly what his ministry was. He died like that seed that goes into the ground, but then germinates and becomes something that bears fruit. The Jews at this day, they saw Jesus' death as the end. And there were still many that believed the resurrection is just a big hoax. It didn't really happen. These people are lying. We can talk about that another time. But, you know, especially the Sadducees, they didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in a spiritual reality. But that's all that Jesus was coming for, was not necessarily to dismiss the physical reality, especially considering the fact that one day our bodies will be resurrected and we will dwell in heaven in a physical body. So it's not that the body is evil and that the only good is in the spirit, but we have to recognize that the spiritual kingdom that exists today is what is going to bear fruit to everything that we find in the book of Revelation and eternity and the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus' death accomplished, it made the road for all of this to happen. His death, in a sense, was the starting point. That was when the seed was planted into the ground so that everything could could unfold from that. I hope this makes sense. And please do not think me a heretic because I said Jesus did not come to die. He did. But that wasn't the ultimate purpose. His death was paving the way for something bigger to happen. And we are partakers in a bit of that better. We are living in the first fruits of the new heaven and the new earth, in the, in the, in the kingdom. We are ruled by Jesus Christ, spiritually speaking. Otherwise, why would we sing a song called Trust and Obey? Why would we need to obey Jesus, if, they're, if he's not really our sovereign Lord. We only obey our authority, right? We submit to our authority. But if there is no kingdom here today, in reality, then why do we submit to Jesus? Why do we submit to the word of God if there is no kingdom today? It's foolishness. But... It's foolishness, too. We don't see Jesus. It's not like there's a throne where the Messiah is sitting. So who, how exactly are we obeying Jesus? I mean, how exactly does this kingdom work? Well, I mean, that's why we have the New Testament, <laughs> to tell us how this new kingdom is working today. Revelation gives us a little bit of a taste into the future kingdom where things will still be different than even they are today. But we submit to Jesus because there is, in reality, a spiritual kingdom interacting with the fleshly existence of this world. And we must believe that. Otherwise, we're just religious fanatics who say lofty things about Jesus and the stuff in Scripture, but really, 
don't know King Jesus. Because we don't care what's here. We don't care to obey King Jesus. So do we really live under the reality that we are in Christ's kingdom? At least the first fruits of what he accomplished on the cross. If we don't care what this says, then are we really dwelling within the kingdom of Christ? Are we really people of faith? Because this kingdom can only be known by faith. That's where the Jews in this triumphal entry got it all wrong. They were looking to a kingdom by sight. We live in a kingdom by faith. Does that make sense? So we obey, not because it just provides a better way of life for us. We obey because we have a real authority, a real king. We live in a real kingdom. That is a stumbling block to those who walk by sight because they can't see it with their eyes. It's not tangible. They can't take a pilgrimage to Christ's capital city. Look at John chapter 12. In verse 20. Now this actually happens after the Hosanna account, but it's the same it's the same day, we suppose. This happens right after Jesus enters the town, enters Jerusalem. The dust people are people are still picking up their palm branches out of the dust. Now among those, this is John 12, 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now how in the world does Jesus' reaction have anything to do with Philip and Andrew coming to Jesus saying, Hey, Greeks are looking for you. <laughs> What does it have to do with that? It just seems like some random sermon that Jesus just felt like preaching to, to Philip and Andrew. But in reality, Jesus is recognizing, okay, the Greeks are coming. Not the redcoats, it's the Greeks. They're coming. That is symbolic of something. Now, Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, if you'd like to look at that with me, it kind of explains a little bit of the thought process here. Matthew 16, 1 through 4. Jesus is illustrating this. Matthew 16, 1 to 4 says, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the sign of the times. 
An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And so he left them and departed. So he's giving an illustration to these um, Pharisees and Sadducees. It says, you know how to tell the weather. You know, when the sky looks like this, that means it's going to be stormy. If the sky looks like this, then it's going to be, you know, maybe there's a cold front coming. If the sky looks like this, then that, you know, you know how to understand those things. But can't you see in scriptures? Can't you tell, the, discern the times from the scriptures? I mean, you're religious leaders. You know the prophecies. You know all the things that I've already been doing are fulfilling of the prophecies that are in scripture. And here we see Jesus in John chapter 12 his reaction is along the same lines of this. Greeks are coming to see Jesus prior to Christ's crucifixion. What does that have to do with anything? Isaiah chapter 42 gives us a little insight. Isaiah chapter 42 verses 1 to 7 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Hear that? The nations, not just Israel, the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Not just Israel. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says the God, says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it. Who gives breath to the people in it and the spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison, those who sit in darkness. So in this passage we see that the Messiah will come to make a light for all the nations. So that all the nations might come to this Messiah for guidance, for light. And in this passage in John chapter 12, as Jesus is coming triumphantly as the coming king, he is coming and then we see a little bit of a dark cloud coming from the distance giving you a little insight as to what's about to happen. A dark cloud comes. You can see flashes of lightning in the cloud. You know it's going to be rainy. You know it's going to be stormy. You know you need to go inside, put the cows in their stalls, in the barn or whatever, however you do that. I'm not a farmer. <laughs> you know how to act because of what the sky looks like. Now we see here Greeks are coming to Jesus, just like the dark cloud is coming from the distance. Jesus hasn't died yet, but it's, the prophecy is that the Messiah will bring in the nations. And we see a taste of this already. And that's why Jesus says, the hour has come. It's time. The Greeks are already starting to come. The nations are already seeking me out. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, to become that light to the nations, to be set up on a hill that cannot be hid so that all can see it. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's going to die 
And then the fruit is going to be born in the reaping in of nations. This is what all of this is talking about. That's why Jesus said what he said after being told, the Greeks are looking for you. Because the time has come. And the Greeks coming to seek Jesus out is, a, is symbolic of the fact that the time has come for Jesus to die. And all of this on the day where he comes in as the coming king. The king who is going to reign in the stead of David, fulfilling the everlasting kingdom prophecies. But in order for him to truly be an everlasting kingdom according to the will of the Father, he must die so that the fruit might be born. That's why he says the hour has come. And in Matthew chapter 21, if you'll look there with me real quick. Matthew chapter 21. This is another triumphal entry account. This is actually the day after the triumphal entry, but we also see prophecy being fulfilled. Matthew 21, 12 to 16 says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. But you made it a den of robbers. So he's driving out all of these people who have been there for years. High-class Jews, people buying and selling, tradesmen. These people have been there for years doing what they're doing. And I don't want to focus on that as much, which we could talk about that for a long time. But then he goes and says, in verse 14, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful signs that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. So we see here an exchange. We see here a trade-off. He kicks out all the high-class Jews coming to offer sacrifices, money changers, people selling sheep and goats for sacrifice, doves. He's flipping over these tables, driving everybody out. Okay? But then, he brings in some other people. And who are those other people that he brought in? The blind and the lame and children. He traded the religious people and the money changers and those who were using religion for their own selfish gain. He traded those people for the poor the lame, and the children. And he quotes an Old Testament passage, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise. The, the religious leaders <laughs> hated this. The scribes came to Jesus rebuking him saying, do you hear all the ruckus these kids are making in the temple of God? Can you believe it? Why are you allowing this to happen? This is the temple. Well, you guys covetously buying and selling And the Bible actually says, the infants and the, and, the, and the babes and the children are actually going to praise me. 
Why should I tell these children to calm down, to quiet down, to stop running around, to stop causing a ruckus? That's what they're supposed to be doing. You are not supposed to be turning my house into a den of robbers. These children are praising my name. These children are beautiful to me. And these poor and these, these sick and these lame, I'm healing these people. I'm encouraging these people. They, they actually want me for me, not for the sake of their religious pretense. Isaiah chapter 41. You can turn there with me if you'd like. Isaiah chapter 41 says in verse 17 to 20, When the poor and the needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. And we can, I'm just going to do all of this good for who? For the poor and the needy. And in Psalm 69, verses 32 and 33 says, When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive, for the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. See, those people that were in the temple, they didn't need Jesus. They didn't need God. They needed to be religious. They needed money. But these poor and these sick and these children, they they needed Jesus. They came to Jesus. The other people ran away from him because of their sin, because of their carnality, because of their covetousness. They were driven out. But these poor and the sick and these children, they came to Jesus and Jesus ministered to them. The others, the Jews, the religious Jews, people who should have known the truth, they actually sought to destroy Jesus. Luke 19.45, if you look there real quick. Luke 19.45. This is the same passage only in Luke. And it says, And he entered, Jesus entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. The poor and the humble came to receive the goodness of Christ, but the religious people, they wanted to destroy this Jesus because he wasn't doing what they wanted. Psalm 118. Verse 22 says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Who are the builders? Those are the priests. Those are the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Those who are supposed to be building the people. Those who are supposed to be the pillars of the truth. Those who the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Isaiah 53, verses 1 to 3 says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
And then just skip down to verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man that was rejected. Who has believed, the prophet says? Who believes this? Very few believe this. In fact, most reject. John 12, verse 35. I'm all over the place. Feel free to just listen if you'd like. John 12, verse 35. says, So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light. And remember, this is during Passion Week. Lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become the sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He had done so many signs. He had fulfilled so many prophecies. Yet the people still wanted more signs. While at the same time plotting his destruction. Look at John 15. Verse 24. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did. They would have not been guilty of sin. But now they have seen. And hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Why was he doing all these signs? To the Jew, to be undeniable proof that this is the Messiah. They had seen it all. And their condemnation was in that they didn't put their faith in him. Because there were a couple things that he did that they did not make sense of. And he did not help their cause for their own selfish ambition. In Psalm 69.4. Says. More in number than the hairs of my head. Are those who hate me without cause. This is where he was quoting from. Mighty are those who would destroy me. Those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal. Must I now restore. It was the mighty. Who came against Jesus. Not the low lowlifes that we would typically associate with crime. The mighty, the high, the religious. In John 12, verse 9. says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on the account of him but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plan to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Can you imagine this? The sign of signs. Jesus raised the man from the dead. Who can give life but God? God's breath is the only thing that gives man life. If he's going to give, raise a man from the dead, it must be by the power of the life-giving God. The Jews knew this. But yet, what did they try to do? They were all out of options. They had to kill Lazarus, put him back to death, so that people would stop believing that Jesus raised him from the dead. Look, here's Lazarus' dead body. You're all telling lies. 
Even though they knew the truth that Lazarus was alive, they still didn't want people to follow Jesus. Even though Jesus had proven beyond a shadow of doubt that he was the Messiah, yet he was despised and rejected by men. And yet, even though all of this was going on, in the fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus still had compassion on them. In Luke chapter 19, this will be the last passage that I take you to. Verses 41 to 44, he says, And when Jesus, when he drew near to Jerusalem, so this is right before the triumphal entry, when he drew near, well, I guess it's in the midst of it. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. You see, Jesus only cries a couple times in Scripture. One, when he was told that Lazarus was dead. And here again, when he's drawing near Jerusalem and sees the city, the buildings, the walls in the distance. And he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that made for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You didn't see the signs. You didn't read the signs. You didn't know what was coming. So you're left unprepared. He had compassion upon these people who would reject him. He hated it. He hated their rejection. He hated their pride, their religious pretense, their covetousness. He hated all of that. But he had compassion on them because he knew what was coming because of it. Because all of those things resulted in their unbelief, which resulted in their destruction. God does not hate you because of your sin. He has compassion on you because of it. We must see Jesus as the king. Not necessarily the king of Israel, but the king of all God's people, the one who brought in all nations, who is the light to all people. Unless he was a light to all nations, every single person in here would be damned. Because we are the nations that Jesus is talking about that would be brought into the light. Unless he had been fulfilled, the true Messiah, the fulfiller of promises of Scripture, we would all be without hope. We must come to him by faith, because that is all we have to believe. I mean, we can see this and not believe it. We have to have faith in this. You don't have to believe this and what it has to say about Jesus the Savior. You don't have to. But I am convinced about its record of Jesus. In this, we must see Jesus as our king. We must come to him, we must kneel to him, we must obey him, we must submit to him. First of all, by faith for the forgiveness of our sins. And to not just rely upon Jesus for the things of the flesh, to make our life better as though that's why he came. Jesus did not come just so that you could have a better life, so that he could wait on you like a, like a sovereign butler. That's not why he came. He came to be your king, a benevolent king, but your king. And that's something that we see in the triumphal entry. We must take it by faith, which is what we see 
was the problem of most of Israel is that they did not see him in the eyes of faith. They had their expectations for what should happen, and Jesus did not meet those expectations. Even though he fulfilled all prophecy, but not according to the expectations of the people. What do you expect of Jesus? Drop it. Believe in, the Jesus, believe in Jesus for who he is and follow him wherever he goes. Because remember, the days will come in the time of tribulation when the, anti, the spirit of the Antichrist will even, if it were possible, deceive the elect. Jesus will go places that don't make sense to us. When Christ returns, perhaps it will be in a way that we were not expecting, just like the Jews were not expecting the Jesus that came 2,000 years ago. They knew the scriptures, they knew the prophecies, but they did not understand the implications. What if Jesus comes in a way filled with implications, but does not meet our expectations according to our theology? Our man-made theology, that is. What if that's the case, because God is into the business of not meeting our expectations because he's in the business of faith. You must receive him by faith. You must follow him by faith. What if something happens in this lifetime that doesn't make any sense according to what you believe about God and Jesus Christ? Will you still follow Jesus because Jesus is the Messiah? Or will you reject him simply because you don't understand how this can make any sense? That's why we must be followers of Jesus rather than seeing Jesus as somebody who has to follow our rules and expectations. Otherwise, we're going to be just like the Jews, who ended up rejecting him. Even though they said all the right things about them for all this time, because of the signs and wonders and the prophecies that he was fulfilling, they were saying all wonderful things about Jesus, up until the moment when he didn't meet their expectations. And were damned. Some of these probably still continued in faith, but most of Israel rejected Jesus. That is my plea to you today, is to put your faith in Christ. For the Christ of the Bible, come what may. No matter what. Stop trusting in your expectations of Jesus. Stop exalting an image that you have set of Jesus. And just seek Jesus in the scriptures and see who he is and follow that Jesus. The king who has come and who has established the first fruits of his kingdom. Let's walk in that. Not the life that we've set up for ourselves with the expectations and the desires that we have for our religious sphere or non religious sphere. Let us seek Jesus, our king. Lord, I thank you for calling us, for giving us no reason. To doubt Jesus, from Scripture anyway, for you have revealed to us the truth of Christ. You have made it clear through the record of his life and his death. Lord, but at the same time, Lord, there, there is much left that could render our faith foolishness. Lord, I just pray that you would give us the humility of these poor and these sick to come to him 
even though he might be causing a ruckus elsewhere. May we be like the Greeks who came to him rather than the Jews who rejected him. Lord, I pray that we would not walk according to sight, according to our agendas, according to our expectations, but Lord, that we would simply see Jesus and trust in him for who he is and be ready to receive him no matter what he might look like. In Jesus' name, amen.